Our text is Psalm 121. Psalm 121. It's a text which is especially precious in our family. When our daughter Elizabeth had a very serious accident back when she was seven years old, we read this psalm to her many, many, many times in the hospital and then again afterwards. And so we still think of it as her psalm. Um, so it's very precious to me personally and to, to, to our household. Like, like Psalm 23, uh, this is a well-known psalm, beloved psalm for many. In fact, Harold told me on the way in this morning I'm preaching on his favorite psalm. And I'm sure that's true of others. Uh, the mere act, you may have noticed this, the mere act of reading Psalm 121 with its pure simplicity, and it has these subtly varying repetitions. It helps to convey the comfort and the safety which it depicts. There's a sort of form and function thing going on. Psalm 121 is a part of a series of 15 psalms, Psalms 120 through 134, those 15 psalms, are known as the Songs of Ascent. The Songs of Ascent. They were most likely used by pilgrims who would be journeying from afar to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts that the law prescribed, the national feasts. And as a group of pilgrims on their way to the city, on their approach, they would have to ascend through the Judean hill country, thus the songs of ascent, they'd have to ascend through the Judean hill country to the mountain of God, to Mount Zion, for the feast. And that time of approach through that mountainous terrain toward the city is almost surely in view in this text, as it is in many of those songs of ascent. So we'll make four points They're there in the bulletin. The God of creation, the God of Israel, the God of the believer, and the God of eternity. Creation, Israel, the believer, and eternity. So first, Psalm 121, first, the God of creation. Verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the mountains, or to the hills. Uh, the, The mountains, or hills here, evoke a number of things. There are a number of associations that would come to an ancient mind. First, there's the simple fact that there are actual mountains that have to be crossed. They have to be navigated if you're going to get to Jerusalem as a pilgrim. And they represent an obstacle. And they may even represent a threat if animals or robbers are hidden in them. Hills, mountains, and high places were also places where gods were worshipped in this world. So they might evoke the places where the pagans worshipped their gods. The high places, as the Old Testament calls them, by which Israel was very often seduced. So the psalmist could be thinking of danger. He could be thinking of pagan gods. But almost surely, first and foremost, he's thinking 
of the hills that surround Jerusalem and protect it. And so with this opening line of of the poem, he introduces what will be the great theme of Psalm 121. For these hills represent the protection of God for his people. This is seen a little more clearly in another psalm of ascent, Psalm 125, which says this. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people now and forevermore. There's that note of surrounding protection by these mountains. And these mountains also surely remind him of the mountain of God, of Zion, and of the God who dwells there. There's a sense in which he's saying the pagans get their help from their mountain-dwelling gods. My help comes from the God who dwells on Mount Zion. And so the opening of Psalm 121 is quite instructive, actually, even in its simplicity. It's, it's the psalmist's own personal sursum corda. Sursum corda, which we have in our liturgy, right, right after the, uh, the offering, means lift up your hearts. Lift up your hearts. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes out and away from yourself to Zion, to the mountain of God. It's the starting point for any kind of prayer or worship. And with his eyes lifted up, he asks, where does my help come from? Where does my help come from? Because he is a pilgrim, and we are pilgrims, and pilgrims need help. They need aid for the journey. So he asks. He lifts up his heart, turns his eyes, and he asks, where does my help come from? And here, help is not just assistance. It's not that we just need assistance. It's that we need active, wakeful provision and protection. Pilgrims are exposed until they get home. They're exposed until they get to Jerusalem. Right, Hebrews 3 and 4 says you're exposed till you reach the eternal Sabbath rest of God. So pilgrims, pilgrims such as we are, have to constantly turn our eyes to God, who is our homeland, our dwelling place. We saw that in Psalm 90. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is, is to come. And so we're always looking, turning, lifting our eyes and our hearts toward it. And so he's asked this question, where does my help come from? He answers it with confidence in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So he knows that when he looks to Zion, he's looking to what Zion is a replica of. Or to what Zion points him to. That little hill in Jerusalem points to God in his heavenly temple. We have this in in words from another psalm of ascent, Psalm 123. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. So his help comes from the Lord. Lord means Yahweh, Israel's God. 
And Yahweh is the maker of heaven and earth. Israel's God is the maker of heaven and earth. Isaiah says he's the one who creates, calls the heavens and the starry host by name. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He's not a local deity, in other words. He's not a tribal deity. He's not just Israel's God. So he echoes yet another song of ascent, Psalm 124. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is an important title and one that I think we might be tempted to slide over quickly. When we name Israel's God as the creator of all things, visible and invisible, this is a way of saying he is almighty. I believe in one God, the creed says, the Father Almighty. The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so, we need only the doctrine, the teaching, of God as creator to know that unlike the other gods, gods of the other hills, He's willing and able to aid and defend us. So these are potent words to call God the maker of heaven and earth. Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, called God this, the maker of heaven and earth, when the Assyrians were threatening Jerusalem. And Jeremiah calls upon God as the maker of heaven and earth during during, in the middle of the Babylonian siege of the city. It's good. We've seen throughout the Psalms, it's very good. It's a wonderful thing to appeal to God as the God of the covenant. But behind and broader, and in some senses wider, than the fact that God is the God of the covenant, is that the God of the covenant is the maker of heaven and earth. And you can appeal to him as such. In other words, the idea that God is creator has real concrete, practical, vital force in your soul. You call upon God as creator when your city's being burned. So, it's not simply a past reality or just backdrop for the play, you know, sort of stage scenery. God is creator, but the real action happens when he redeems. We can just move on from the creator part. The the fact that God is creator is a very present, potent, powerful comfort in your distress. For pilgrims have to call upon the creator God of heaven and earth to guide them. And we should learn. We should learn then from our fathers in the faith, like Jeremiah, to call upon the Lord as the maker of heaven and earth. You can look at the stars, you can look at the sun, you can look at the seasons, and you can beg and plead with God for help. Because he's almighty. So the second point here is the God of Israel. And and here in, in Psalm 121, a third party, perhaps other pilgrims, or a priest or priests, speaks to the psalmist. You'll notice that if you read the psalm. It's a reminder that the poet, the pilgrim, is not alone. He's situated among these other people of God who are making the pilgrimage with him. 
Right? We never make this pilgrimage alone. And so you can sort of imagine a single person beginning Psalm 121, speaking verses 1 and 2, and then all the other people that are with him, or perhaps a priest, answering with verses 3 through 8. And they say, he will not let your foot slip. Again, pilgrims are in danger. The very hills pose a threat. There, there are, G.K. Chesterton said, an infinity of angles at which you can fall. But there is only one at which you stand. It's very easy for your foot to slip. There's a million ways it can slip. There's only one way it stands upright. Life is going to knock pilgrims around. Hills and obstacles will be daunting, imposing. This text says the maker of heaven and earth will not let you fall irrevocably from the faith. Doesn't mean you'll never sin. Slip here means to slip away from God's grasp. Verse 3 continues, he who watches over you will not slumber. This is the first of six mentions of the word watch or keep. The same word used in that wonderful ironic benediction where the, where the ironic priests would place the name of God on the people of God and say, the Lord bless and keep you. That's the word for watching or keeping here. And so it means God is awake. He's active. He's vigilant. This is far-seeing watchfulness and care. He's not just responding. He's, He's looking ahead and around and behind and above and below. So the creator doesn't forget or lose track of his creatures. So the Lord keeps and guards and shelters and protects every one of his pilgrims. Verse 4 says, he watches over, and this is a key transition in the psalm, and it's subtle. He watches over Israel. He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And it's important to see this. Here we see that the promises come to us in the context of Israel. In the, that is in the context of the community of God's people. So that he who watches over you, you personally, is first and foremost the God who covenanted with and watches over Israel. That's important to see. He who watches over you is first and foremost the God who covenanted with and who watches over Israel. So ask yourself this question. Why do these promises in Psalm 121 pertain to us? They pertain to us because we keep faith with the people of God. One scholar put it this way, because he keeps pilgrim Israel, he keeps all the pilgrims in Israel. Because he keeps pilgrim Israel, he keeps all the pilgrims in Israel. So, the community of the church, then, is where God watches after you. It would be an illegitimate thing to just take this psalm and read it 
as if it was written directly to you, isolated from the people of God. That would be a gross misreading of the psalm. He who watches over Israel doesn't slumber or sleep. Sometimes the psalms address God as if he is sleeping. He's called to rouse himself. But of course, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he doesn't grow tired and he doesn't grow weary. So, Israel, in actual history, on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would camp out in open mountain ranges. And this ever-watchful present care of God would be a matter, perhaps, of life and death. Not just pious sentiments. Jacob lay down in the open field and slept on a pillow of rock. And when he confronted danger in the night, he found out that the Lord was in that place. And know what God said to him? God said to him, I am with you. I will keep you. I will keep you wherever you go. It's not enough to have human guards. Even watchmen in the night can doze off. You can remember Elijah satirizing the pagan god Baal in an encounter on yet another mountain, Mount Carmel, by saying, when Baal didn't answer, hey, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping, Elijah says. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you need to wake him up. But the maker of heaven and earth, the all-seeing one, The ever-living one, God is always alive. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. He watches over Israel, and he watches over you in Israel, in the church, with the church, with the Israel of God. I sometimes like to put it like this. God is building a house, right? Not just a pile of stones. You're a stone, you're a living stone, but what God wants to do with you is fit you into the house. You have to have stones to build the house, but God's not just polishing individual stones, he's building a house. Or, put differently, God's making an omelet. You guys are eggs. But a lot of Christians think think that God is just frying an individual egg. No, you need eggs to make an omelet, but God's not making eggs. Nor is he piling up rocks. He's building a house. He's making an omelet. He keeps you in, with, and through Israel. This is why notions of, well, I believe in, I, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the church, are so fundamentally misguided. God keeps you in and with the community that he's formed. So the third thing, then, is the God of the believer. In verse 5, Israel's guardian is, in fact, your guardian. He watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand, the text says. This is a wonderful metaphor, shade. It's a metaphor for the shadow of his wings. That's that's how it's uh, referred to in other psalms. So the idea is that God is nearer to you, closer to you than your own shadow is. God is more fundamentally present to you than you are in your own self-consciousness. And that's good news. 
And he's at your right hand. And that means your working hand. That means in the midst of your endeavors. He watches and shadows and shields you while you're working, while you're otherwise occupied. Thus the text says, the sun won't harm you by day nor the moon by night. There's no time, no time, when you are not protected from harm. There's no lapse. There's no changing of the guards where there's a gap or a space. Dangers of the light, dangers of the dark, dangers seen, dangers unseen, dangers known, dangers unknown. Fears real and fears imagined, fears rational and fears irrational. The Lord is at your right hand, and he shields you. He created the sun and the moon, and the pagans worshipped them superstitiously. But what this text is saying is that the sun and the moon, day and night, heat and cold, they mark for you the rhythms. They mark for you the rhythms of the Lord, God's tender protection and watchful care. They're desacralized. They're stripped of their fear and their dread. Pagans are afraid of the moon. They have all sorts of moon theories and moon gods. The sun won't harm you by day nor the moon by night. Finally, the God of eternity. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. Now, you may have had this thought prior to this. But... Perhaps here, the psalm seems to overreach. This is a danger with a psalm like Psalm 121. It seems to overreach. Who exactly ever is protected from all harm? Right? I mean, everybody ends up in that cemetery down there. So let me say a word about this. Surely the psalm doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. And you're not going to die. That would be absurd. I mean, to think that the Israelites who spent 400 years in slavery and whose whole history is a crucible would read Psalm 121 in some naively modern way as if it meant nothing bad will ever happen. The way TV preachers often take Psalms like this. So... What do we mean? What does the psalm mean with these seemingly over-the-top promises of this kind of protection and, and safety? Well, I think we can, get this, we can pick the sense up of something like Psalm 121 from two references. The first one, Psalm 23, the other beloved psalm like this. It's a text just like this one. It speaks of the Lord's guardianship and His tender care. Yet that text, just like this one, assumes real enemies. Right? Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It assumes we walk as all flesh does through the valley of the shadow of death. And so the point is that in and through all these things, God keeps us. He brings pilgrims safely to their destination, to Jerusalem. Second, And maybe even more um, helpful in bringing this into focus here. 
are Jesus' words to his disciples in Luke 21. These are astonishing words. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says in the same breath, you will be hated, betrayed, and killed, martyred, yet not a single hair of your head shall perish. Now, that means that should the worst things that can possibly happen, happen to you, God will still protect you from all harm. Because that protection depends on your being united to the risen Christ. Having a bond of communion with the immortal, indestructible, risen Jesus Christ, so that even death itself, right, if your city is burned down like Jeremiah's did, God will protect you from all harm. If the worst things that can possibly befall you or your children or your house or your assets or your plans happen, God will protect you from all harm because you have a communion bond with the immortal, risen, indestructible Christ. That's why Jesus can talk to his disciples and say, you will be hated, you will be betrayed, you will be tortured, you will be killed. Not one hair of your head shall perish. Now, this is unnerving. I get it at first. For some people, it's unnerving. They want to read Psalm 121 and say, this means nothing bad will happen to me or to my family or to my children. That is a delusion. If you go through the unnervingness of it, though, this is extraordinary, liberating comfort. This is why Paul can say, I am persuaded that nothing in all creation, not things present nor things to come, Neither life nor death nor anything else can sever us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. That's what Psalm 121 is about when it's talking about God protecting you from all harm. So we can't sentimentalize the text. The text has a kind of charm which makes it easy to do. When we think of harm, we should think first of all, of unrepentant sin. An ounce of sin is more dangerous than a river of suffering submitted to with trust and hope. Suffering endured that way is redemptive. It keeps us from harm. We have everything backwards here often as Americans. Those who suffer, Peter says in his first epistle, should commit themselves to their faithful creator. We heard this in the New Testament lesson today. The maker of heaven and earth. That's a Psalm 121 sentiment. Peter is talking to suffering Christians, Christians being arrested for their faith. And he says, you should do what the psalmist in in Psalm 121 does. Commit yourself to your faithful creator. Harm is error and pride and deceit and unbelief and idolatry and complacency. It's compromise with evil. It's the world, the flesh, the dark powers. Harm is that and only that which keeps us from reaching Jerusalem in peace. And the Lord, the guardian of Israel, promises that he will keep you from all harm. And read this way, we confess the psalm in its full, robust character. 
He will turn whatever adversity he sends to you to good. As the hymn puts it, he sanctifies to us our deepest distress. So he will preserve. He'll preserve his persevering saints to the end. He watches over the course, the outcome of your life. This is good news that God does this and makes these promises in this fashion to us. You know what it does? It liberates us to be children, right? Who run and who play and who frolic and who delight in the world because we're liberated from the burden of having to be our own protectors and our own keepers. Constantly worried that some unknown, unforeseen, unthought of event or force is going to undermine some plan that we have to which our happiness is bound. This is a delightful thing. This is the liberation that we will see signified in a few minutes in baptism. Everything in the Christian life always comes down to this. Union with Jesus Christ in his death. And liberty and joy and freedom in his resurrection. There is no point where we are not united to Christ's death and his resurrection. So verse 8 says, the Lord will watch over your coming and your going. This is all your enterprises, right? Your birth, your death, your going out in the morning, your coming home at night, your travels and returns, your hellos and goodbyes. There's no place, just like there was no time, when the watching, keeping, guarding of our God ceases. What would happen? If we didn't read the text this way and something bad happened, would we think God took a nap? Or would we think the person didn't claim the psalm strong enough in faith? We can declare in Christ the words of the psalm plainly and directly. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going. There's no place where you're not protected or where the guarding of God ceases. The text says he does this now and forevermore. That means he does it through the successive generations. The text actually envisions one generation fading away and another one coming because God guards Israel now and forevermore through your individual death into eternity, in the present and into the future in all of its fullness. For us, death is the vestibule to glory because Jesus has stripped it of its power. So, God guards Israel into eternity because he's the high eternal one. So God has purposes for you. They're eternal purposes and they can't be thwarted. Any more than his own eternity, any more than his own sovereignty over time can be assailed. And as always, we should, and I've indicated this already, we should think of this psalm in the bright glory of Jesus Christ. He's the eternal son of God. He's the good shepherd, the guardian of the sheep. We read this in the gospel lesson this morning. And his, Jesus' vigilant watching, protecting of you, is such that, as he said in the text from John 10, no one or no thing can snatch you out of his hand. He tells the Father, I've kept the ones you've given me. Not one of them is lost. Not one of my sheep shall perish. 
Not one of them shall not reach Jerusalem in peace. Do you know what this means in the light of Psalm 121? Here in Psalm 121, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth, is the guardian and the watcher and the keeper of his pilgrims. And in the New Testament, Jesus Christ takes all these titles to himself, all these prerogatives to himself. He is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth in human flesh. And he says, I am with you now and always and forevermore, even to the end of the age. And so when we read this text now in Christ, we lift up our eyes to heaven, to the heavenly Zion, to the city which is to come. We do this because that is, Paul tells us, that is where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And we set our affections there. For our life, our very life is hidden, kept safe from harm. Notice that word in Colossians 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Utterly preserved, protected from all forces of harm. And we know, we confess with unshakable hope that from there when he appears, we shall appear with him in glory because Jesus brings all his pilgrims to their destination in the heavenly Jerusalem. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, the maker of heaven and earth, the guardian of Israel. Praise be to his blessed name. Amen.